Y'all turn with me uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start a new series today. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about uh, something else, something important in the life of our church. You know, I got here about six months ago. Easter Sunday was my first Sunday. And uh, it was a great day, and I knew that good things were ahead. But I wanted to make sure and get it right. Uh, and so for the last six months, the staff and I have been praying diligently that God would guide us. Um, I've visited every life group in the church. I've gotten to know a lot of people. I've heard the heartbeat of you. You've shared with me your concerns, your dreams, your hopes. Um, we've read some challenging books together, the ministers and I, and uh, have really asked some tough questions of ourselves. And it was all leading up to a staff retreat we were going to take and get away and, and just sort of come up with the next few years' vision of what we, where, the direction we thought God was leading us to lead this church. And so uh, a lot went into that, and, and last week we did go away to uh, a place about two hours away from here. A couple of church members let us stay in their house free of charge, which was nice. Uh, it was on the beach, but we didn't really get to hang out on the beach. We were inside uh, just, just working together. And the thing is, before I left, I knew I really loved the men and women I get to work with. I enjoy them genuinely. That's a good thing. That's a rare thing. But what I found out when we got there was that God had prepared our hearts and we all were thinking the same things. We were all uh, thinking in the same direction and, and our hearts were beating the same. We just needed a chance to get together and articulate it and know how to verbalize it together. So uh, what I want to share with you this morning before we get into the word is the vision we feel like God has laid on our hearts as the people you've called us to called on to lead this congregation and uh, pray that you would join us in this. So here's what we, what we came up with. Over the next three years, we are calling on God to renovate the heart of First Baptist Church so that we will become a church in which ordinary people are transformed into world-changing disciple-makers. And there's a lot in that sentence. Let me just say a couple of things. Renovate the heart implies that we need change. Hopefully, we, as a congregation, we're, we're humble enough to say that we're a great church and God's done great things, but we're not where we should be. We need God to transform us. Um, the idea that, you know, what it, what it comes down to is we looked around and we said, we've got a lot of great programs, a lot of things that people in this church have invested in for long before we got here. And it would be very easy for us as ministers and as ministry volunteers to just put all of our full-time work into maintaining what is here. And that's a full-time job. But that's not what God wants because God didn't send his son to die for programs, and programs never saved anybody. God loves people. And we're going to keep on doing ministry, but our focus is not going to be just on maintaining programs and how many we've got on Wednesday night and how many we've got on Sunday morning. It's going to be on changing people's lives. And if we're the church that God has called us to be, people will be transformed from ordinary, wherever they are, into people who are true disciple makers. That means wherever they go, they change the environment, whether it's their workplace, their family, their community, their school, their friendship circle. They change people around them because they're following Christ and they turn others into followers of Christ. And it, it, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to, to hope for in three years. How will we know if we've gotten there? We, we set up four signs, four <clears throat> real clear indicators that we thought would, would be a sign that we're getting there. And, and the four I want to share with you are a clear identity, 
If when, once we're at church where you talk to the average First Baptist member and they know, here's what we're about. We're not just about having church at 8.30 and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. We're about changing lives. That's who we're here for. And when the community comes to know that, if you want your life changed for the better, you go to First Baptist, and that's where it happens. That's how we know we're getting there. Second sign is reaching people. Any, any church that's really following Jesus, if we're doing what Christ has told us to do, people through our influence are going to come to salvation. And I know it's a different world today, and, and it's harder to share the gospel, and people are less receptive but, hey, it was a hard world when the disciples got started and, and they turned the world upside down. We believe that if we're doing our job and the Lord is blessing our efforts, we'll see this church grow. It's not about the numbers, but we really feel like in three years we could see this church double in size. And, and we look forward to that, even though it's going to bring new challenges and cause a lot of changes to have to take place in order to accommodate all those people. That's, that's a good problem. Um, third sign we know is, is true biblical community. If, if God is transforming the heart, renovating the heart of this church, then we're not just going to get along with each other like we do now. I treasure that, but we're going to do more than that. We're going to be involved in smaller groups together where we love one another truly enough that when you weep, I weep, and when you rejoice, I rejoice, and when you're missing, I call you up and say, where you been? And and when, you, when you're walking, when you're out of line, I grab you and, and pull you back. I mean, we, we, will, we will walk together, and, and through that, we'll see marriages broken marriages restored and, and addictions broken and destructive habits shattered and people who can't really do life well all of a sudden learning how to do life well. And we'll see races resolve and, and reconcile. And most of all, we'll see people who are far from God being saved by His grace. And then fourth, the fourth sign we're getting there is leadership development in that we won't just be a place that brings people in, but we'll be a place that sends people out, a group of people that that raise up men and women, no matter what their skill set, no matter what their personality, they'll be equipped to be the leaders God's called them to be. In the church, that's mean, that means we won't stand up here and say, hey, we need volunteers because we'll have a pool of volunteers, people fighting for jobs, but also leaders in their community, in their businesses, in their families that change the world for Christ. So what's next? I mean, that's, that's great language, but how does this shake out practically? We set a goal for the next year, and, and again, these are just numbers. We don't know what God's going to do, but here's what we're going to be working on as a staff, and we hope you'll join us in. We, we believe that in 12 months, we'll reach 1,000 in average worship attendance with at least 10% of our attenders being non-white. And let me tell you why we said that. Um, again, the numbers are just numbers. It's not the, that's not the important part. But if we, I mean, we're at 750 in average worship now. If we grew by that much in a year, that would indicate that we're actually reaching people and we're growing again. We're, we're doing what God's called us to do. And if, if at least 10% of those people didn't look like us, that would mean a change in this congregation. I mean, you look around and we mostly look the same. And y'all are good looking. I believe that. But hey, that's kind of boring too, all right? We want to see a church that re reaches our whole community, not just the people who are like us. And that would be a sign that we're beginning to do that. That's the heartbeat of God. You watch the news and all the racial strife. It's not going to be solved by legislation or protests or stuff on social media. It's going to be resolved by the peace of Jesus Christ that comes only through his gospel. And we've got to model that. So that's our goal. I hope that you will join us in praying for that. I hope it gets you at least one-tenth as excited as it does the, the six of us. And I hope we can adequately communicate it. We've got a lot of initiatives specifically to get us started in that direction. I won't get into that now. That'll come later. But uh, if you've got any questions, come talk to me and be in prayer for us because this doesn't happen unless God's in charge. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. 
Luke chapter 5, verse 12, you know, ask yourself the question, who's the most important, most influential person in the world today? That's a good question, isn't it? And there's a lot of debate, I'm sure, on that. If you ask that question 200 years ago, I think most people would have said Napoleon Bonaparte. He's the most influential person on earth. He's the leader of France. France is the most powerful nation. They've taken over most of Europe. Uh, if he gets his way, he's going to have Russia and who knows what, after, what else after that. But as we know, not long after that, he met his Waterloo, uh, literally. And I can't think of a single way he influences us today. A hundred years ago, if you would have asked the average person who's the most influential person on earth, they might have said, well, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, he basically got World War I started, and a hundred years ago, that was the big news of the day. The world was in this terrible conflagration caused by this one guy. But you've got to be a serious history nerd to even know who he was. So you can hardly say he's influential today. Today, if someone asks you who's the most influential person, you might say, well, the president of the United States, he's the leader of the most powerful nation on earth. Or someone else might say, well, Steve Jobs, even though he's been dead for a few years, the inventions, the innovations he brought in, they affected most people's lives in, in, in powerful ways. Some of you are staring at your iPhone right now when you should be listening to me. And I know you're, you're looking at your Bible, right? But, you know, the thing is, Five years from now, someone will have come up with an invention that will make the iPhone look ridiculous. And we'll look back and say, yeah, I remember when Steve Jobs was thought to be a genius, and now there's this other guy. But I say the most influential person in the world today is the same person who's been the most influential person on earth for the last 2,000 years. And he's a person that was born in this tiny village in an insignificant country on the other side of the world at a time when his people were 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 oppressed by a foreign power. At, at his best, he had 100 or, or 200 uh, followers. And yet today, all of history is literally divided into everything that happened before his birth and everything that happened after his birth. And that guy's name was Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus was God in human form, which means that if you spend time getting to know him, you're literally getting to know God. You don't have to believe that in order to agree with what I'm about to say next. Jesus has changed the world more profoundly than any person who has ever lived. He has influenced more lives. He has changed more of how humanity lives today than any person who's ever lived. And in fact, even most Christians don't even understand the influence he's had. So over the next several weeks, between now and Thanksgiving, we're going to be talking about the impact Jesus made in this world. And this is a great time. I mean, it's always a good time to invite an unbeliever to a church because they're going to hear the gospel if they show up here. But the next several weeks are especially good times because hopefully this will spark some discussion. If you've got a friend or a loved one who says, well, you know, Jesus is probably a good guy, but what has the church ever done for the world? You need to ask them, ask your friends to come, bribe them if you have to, bring them so they'll hear some things that might challenge their thinking. Be in prayer about this. Jesus Christ stands first. And, and this, the name of this series is The Man Who Changed every, Everything because he literally did. And beyond inviting your unsaved neighbors, you want to get something out of this too, I hope. And if you do, let me suggest that you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the only authorized biographies of Jesus that exist. You've probably read them before. It won't hurt you to read them again, and you've got plenty of time between now and Thanksgiving. And if you want some supplemental material, there's a book that was very influential on me, and in fact, inspired me to come up with this series. It's, the name of the book is Who Is This Man? 
by John Ortberg. Who is this man by John Ortberg? So take a look at that book if you're into reading and you want some, some supplemental stuff. So let's look at our text, chapter 5, verse 12 of Luke. Chapter 5, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to heal them, hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Now you may think, okay, what's so remarkable about that story? Jesus just healed a man Hasn't he done that many other times in the Gospels? There isn't even a lot of detail in this story. Why are we focusing here? Well, there's a detail here that I want you to to pay attention to. Notice that Jesus touched this man. Quick question. Did he always do that when he healed someone? No, he didn't. There were times, in fact, when Jesus wasn't even in the presence of the person he healed. A guy came to him and said, my daughter is sick. Another man came to him and said, my servant is dying. Both times, Jesus said, go home and they'll be healed. And sure enough, as soon as that person got home, the person they were concerned with was already well. Jesus didn't even have to be in their physical presence. So why does he reach out and lay hands on this guy? Well, think about this for a moment. The other detail we see in this is the man had leprosy. Now, that wasn't a specific disease. That was a grab bag. That was a catch-all term in the ancient world for a variety of diseases. Any infectious skin disease, they just called leprosy. And those were the most feared diseases in the ancient world because, number one, they were so infectious. They spread so quickly. Number two, because they were visible. I mean, it's one thing if your lungs are breaking down or your heart is weak, but if you have a rash on your skin that is literally eating your flesh, which is what leprosy and these other diseases did, then people can see it. They can see you coming. And they dread you. And so these were dreaded diseases. And in fact, the laws in Israel stipulated that if you had a rash, you were to immediately go to the priest. The priest was to diagnose you. If he diagnosed you with leprosy, you had to tear your clothing and immediately leave your village. And you had to live on the outskirts, far from society. If people came and, and, and crossed paths with you, if they saw you from a distance and didn't notice your torn clothing and recognize you as a leper, you were required by law to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that they would turn and walk the other direction. Can you imagine? And if you didn't, it was punishable by stoning. So imagine this were true today. Imagine that we had the same fear of this disease they did back then. And and tomorrow you wake up and there's a little rash on your arm and, and you think, well, maybe this is poison ivy. Maybe this is just hives. But just to be safe, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm sorry, sir. Sorry, ma'am, you have leprosy. And instead of prescribing you medicine or, or sending you to a hospital, he calls the police. And the police immediately arrive, and all, all masked up and, and gloved up, and they, they take you to the edge of town, and they, they send you out. They say, we better not see you again, because we will shoot you on sight. And there you are, stuck in the wilderness. And you know it's for the rest of your life, because there's no cure. And you will never see another person, not up close. You will never feel a human touch. You'll never shake hands with someone. You'll never hug someone. You'll never pat someone on the back or give someone a playful punch on the arm. That's it. 
You have no more human contact. Maybe, maybe once in a while you, you gather up your courage and you sneak into town under cover of darkness so that when your kids wake up and go to school and get on the school bus, you can watch them from a distance. Maybe, maybe sometimes you sneak into town and hide in the shadows just so you can see what other people look like, but you don't have any contact with them. And, and we take for granted human contact. But after a while, you don't. You hunger for it. And one day you hear about this man, Jesus, this man who supposedly can heal people, and you think to yourself, you know, if I go into town and I walk up to him and I say, can you heal me, he might just shout unclean and, and recoil in fear. That He might pick up rocks to stone me. He might, he might run from me and, and the mob will descend. I, I could die today, but I can't go on living like this. I'm going to try. And imagine you go to Jesus and rather than running, rather than shouting, rather than curling his lip in a sneer, he, he reaches out and touches you. Why did Jesus do that? He did it because that's exactly what that person needed. He didn't just need to be healed on the inside. He needed to be touched. He needed to know, I matter. I'm human. I'm loved. That's the way Jesus was. I want to be clear about something, and this bothers some people, and you don't really get this unless you really read the Gospels. Jesus was not the nicest person who ever lived. Jesus could be rude. Jesus could be offensive. Jesus said things people didn't like. You don't crucify nice people. Jesus got on people's nerves, but he was the kindest person who ever lived. There's not a time anywhere in the Gospels when we see Jesus walk away from someone with a legitimate need. The nicest people I know, even the nicest people I know, there comes times when their patience runs thin. When they see one more person who needs them and they say to themselves, I just don't have the energy for this. I gave to the last guy. Here's this other guy. It's not my job. It's someone else's. Jesus wasn't that way. There's never a time Jesus walks away from someone legitimately in need. In fact, one of my favorite stories in the gospel is one that continually challenges me because I have the spiritual gift of laziness. One of the stories that really challenges me is one day Jesus and his disciples had just come back. His disciples had come back from this long period of ministry. Jesus, of course, had never stopped working. And he said to him, I've got a great idea. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And what he was really saying was, let's get away from the crowds. And if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, good job, Jesus. Amen. That's what I need. I need, I need some R&R. And they got in the boat, and as they were floating across, as they were sailing across, they looked on the shore, and they saw the crowds running along the edge of the lake. And they knew, they're going to beat us there. The wind's not very strong. They're going to be there waiting on us when we get there. And it was, they had to have felt that feeling like you feel when you're on vacation and your boss calls you. And you're like, why did I give him my cell number? And yet Jesus got off the boat, and the first thing he did was start healing people. Because it says he saw the crowds and he felt compassion for them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. The word in Greek the Bible uses for compassion is literally he felt it in his gut. He couldn't walk away. Later on, he would say, if you want to show me love, if you want to do me a favor, Here's what I want. Bless the least of my children. Give somebody a cup of cold water. Go visit someone who's in prison. 
Undignify yourself standing in front of a convicted criminal and ministering to that person. Go and minister to someone who's sick. Provide clothes for someone who can't afford them. That's what I appreciate. Jesus was saying, if you want to show love to God, you put his least first. That was a revolutionary statement. Did y'all listen at all to the song that, that Nathan and the band did during the offertory? I love that song, but, but think about the words there. Come if you're struggling. Come if you're hurting. Come as you are. You know, that's a song that wouldn't have made sense in any other context. That's not the, that's not the motto of any country club I know of. If you can't afford our dues, please come. We love you. That's not the motto of any football team or any athletic team I know of. Man, if you, if you can't even throw a ball past your own foot, if you couldn't catch a cold, if you've got no coordination and no strength, we want you. It only makes sense in the context of grace. The church was the first and only organization that made celebrities out of the most marginalized, that said the people we want the most are the people the world wants the least. And that created a revolution in society that had never been done before. Of course, the prophets in the Old Testament uh, uh, railed on Israel and said, you need to love the lost and you need to love those who are hurting. And the Mosaic law uh, commanded kind of a, a, an ancient sense of, of, of a welfare state. In fact, a, a, a welfare system of, of reaching out and helping the poor. But Jesus was different. Jesus said, think about them first. He said, when you throw a party, don't just invite your friends and don't invite the people who can bless you. Invite the crippled, the blind, the lame, and their Father in heaven will see it and be glad. Jesus was different. He changed the world. In fact, when Jesus said those words, he was just this obscure rabbi in this tiny little nation. He had a few hundred followers at best. And the Roman Empire was everything. Rome stretched as far as the eye could see, and they won every battle. They had infinite power. And yet within 300 years, the Roman Empire was officially Christian. How did this happen? Have you ever thought about that? Rodney Stark is a sociologist, not a believer, by the way, who thought about this question. And he said, you know, other religions either, either spread because of ethnic growth, because they're the, the dominant religion of a particular ethnicity, and as that ethnic group grows in population, that religion spreads, or they spread through military conquest, like Islam uh, conquered the Middle East and, and part of Europe through just winning battle after battle. But Christianity didn't spread like that. So how is it that Christianity overcame Rome? And his conclusion after years of study, he's written several books about this, his conclusion was the main difference was compassion. And he found story after story of, of Christians in the ancient world who would do these incredibly amazing, compassionate things, like there would be a plague in a particular big city. And in those days, no one knew, knew how disease spread. And so as soon as they heard the plague was there, they would just run. They would just leave the city, evacuate. The city would be a ghost town. And they would leave behind even their own loved ones who were sick because all they knew was if you stay where the plague is, you're going to get sick and die. And the only people who would stay behind were the Christians. The Christians would stick around, and they would minister to the sick, and they would bury the dead. And some of those Christians would get sick, and they themselves would die. And they didn't seem to mind. They didn't seem to, to uh, be sorrowful that they had done this. In fact, they, they seemed to rejoice because they said, hey, we've got another life coming after this one, and the best way to prepare for that life is to do God's work in this life. In fact, what could be more glorious than to die doing God's work? And that changed the world. 
It wasn't the message. It wasn't the powerful preaching. It sure wasn't buildings or strategies or programs. It was, why are these people so different? Why do they love people who can't pay them back? Even the enemies of Christianity, a man named uh, Julian, he was the emperor, Caesar. Julian the apostate, we call him today because he opposed the church. And he, we found a letter written by him in which he complains to his pagan priests. He says, these impious Galileans are making us look bad because they're reaching out to our, own, our poor and not just their own. That's the way of the cross. In 325, a group of bishops met in Nicaea. We know that meeting because of the Nicene Creed that came out of it, but something else happened in that meeting. In that meeting, the leaders of the Christian church at that time said, from now on, no one's going to build a church building without also building a hospital. Every cathedral will be connected to a place where you can bring sick people. That had never been done before. In fact, hospitals didn't exist until the church. Nobody had ever thought, hey, let's get all the sick people in one place so we can minister to them together. The idea before had always been, let's kick the sick people out. Many years later, a Swiss man uh, named Jean-Henri Dunant, in the middle of wartime, wanted to create an organization to minister to wounded soldiers. That became the Red Cross. Later on, a Methodist preacher named William Booth looked at the, the scads of poor people in London and said, somebody's got to do something. The heart of Christ bleeds for these people. And so he created what is today the Salvation Army. A slave ship captain named John Newton, a morally reprobate man, twisted and dark in his heart, met Jesus Christ after nearly dying, and his heart was changed so deeply, he became an Anglican priest and a hymn writer. He wrote, you may know one of his songs, Amazing Grace. He was also a passionate, passionate opponent of slavery. And he deeply influenced a young member of parliament, a young politician, named William Wilberforce. Wilberforce became a Christian too. Wilberforce was a unique guy. He was wealthy. He had connections and resources, was a powerful speaker. He could have easily been England's prime minister, but instead he devoted himself from that day forward to one issue and one issue only, and that was the destruction of slavery. Just a few days before his death, he received the news in 1807 that slavery was finally abolished throughout the British Empire and all its colonies. In our country, sad to say, it took another half century before that happened. But when it did, we could thank the, the leaders of the abolition movement, men and women like William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Julia Ward Howe, Charles Finney, all of whom were devout believers in Christ. They were motivated by the thought that God loves all people equally. And I'm not trying to say that only Christians are compassionate or only Christians do good things. I'm not even trying to say that all Christians are compassionate. But when a church is following the founding principles of its founder, it's going to reach people who are hurting. It's going to love the least and the lost. The philosopher Mark Nelson put it this way, Whenever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Much of what we consider compassion, the world has forgotten. It came from him, not from any kind of government system, capitalism or socialism or anything in between. It came from Jesus. And it's still going on today. I remember a few years ago when a series of devastating tornadoes hit Oklahoma and I was watching the news. And this will tell you about how long ago it was Brian Williams was still the anchor of NBC News. 
He was talking to his reporter on the ground, and the reporter said the following words. And, and I remember it distinctly because when he said it, I sat up in my chair, I, I hit the DVR button and, and rewound because I wanted to hear it again, and I wrote it down. The, the reporter said, the reporter said, Brian, we expect FEMA to be out here to help in about a week or two, but the Baptist men will be here tomorrow. I was like, did I really just hear that? And he said it proudly, like, take that, tornadoes. You're, mat- you're no match for the Baptist men. It was amazing. And that's, that kind of stuff goes on all the time. You know, sometimes people wonder, why do churches get tax exemption? Critics of the church, even some Christians, look and say, what are they just spending that money on big fancy buildings? paying their pastors way too much? Should they get tax exemption? Shouldn't they pay taxes like other businesses? Wouldn't that help the public system to bring in all that tax revenue? A man did a study to to find out, an organization actually did a study to find out, is it worth it to give churches exemption from taxes? Here's what they discovered. The average church if they build their community for the social services they provide in terms of volunteer hours and other ways they bless the lives of their community, if the average church build its community for the social services it provides, the total bill would be $184,000 a year. Two things. One, that was 15 years ago, so I'm sure the number's much higher now. Two, the average church is 75 people. Our church is about 10 times the size of the average church. I don't even know how much our impact is. I haven't done the math. I wouldn't be the guy who would be able to do the math, but I do know this. Here's what I do know. In this church, this church alone, and we're by no means the only church or the best church, but in this church alone, we feed the homeless. We help families in transition find a place to live and get back on their feet. We teach immigrants English and help them achieve citizenship. We give away prom dresses to teenage girls who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford them. We send Christmas presents to kids around the world and shoes to orphans in foreign countries. We adopt kids in an apartment complex. We mentor kids in schools across this city. There's a a dozen other things that, here's the cool thing about being the pastor here. I've, I've been here six months and I'm still finding out new stuff. Oh, we do that? Really? In addition to all the volunteer work, this coming year, if you approve the budget we're about to vote on, We'll give away over a quarter million dollars of our own money to mission causes, both locally and globally. And in addition to all of that, we have all these various drives and and offerings and special offerings and, hey, let's pass the hat to help so-and-so and all the individual acts of kindness that you do every week that I'll never know about. And on top of all of that, one of the hardest things about my job is people continually come to me and say, I think we should do this in addition. And I have to figure out how to work that into the church program or how to tell them, no, we're actually doing this in this way. The heart of this church beats for those who are hurting. Why? It's not because we're better than other people. It's because that's who our Lord is. And we can't help but be compassionate if we follow him, if we want to please him, if we want to satisfy him. You know, irreligious people get... They get kind of defensive about this. And I've got friends who are atheists. I know that I'm not a better person than they are by nature, and so I'm not trying to bag on them. But I, I, do, I do find it interesting. They, they get defensive when they hear about the good deeds Christians do because 
it's got to be hard knowing that there are no atheist hospitals. There aren't any secular humanist orphanages. And so they'll say things like, well, of course you Christians do good deeds. You're trying to buy your way into heaven. Man, at least when I do something nice, I'm doing it for the right reasons, not for selfish purposes. And what they, when they say that, they betray a fundamental misunderstanding of what the teachings of Christ actually are. Because I don't know what you've heard, but the gospel is quite clear. That you can give away every dime you ever make and it won't impress God one bit. And you can volunteer and you can serve the poor day and night until you die of exhaustion and God will not be pleased with that at all. You can offer your life as a martyr to the cause and God's not going to say, okay, for that you get into heaven. You can't earn heaven no matter what you do. Heaven cannot be earned, not by sinful people like us. It can only be given by the one person righteous enough to live there. And that's what God has done through Jesus Christ. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to open a door to salvation, which is a free gift, the best gift you've ever been given. And what happens when you get a gift that is exactly what you needed? You feel compelled to give a gift back to the one who gave it to you. The interesting thing is, what do you give the God who has everything, literally? Well, he's already told us the only thing we can do that would really, really bless him is when we love the least of his children. So why do we do compassionate things? Not because we want God to love us. We do compassionate things because he already does. And this is the best way we know of to say I love you back. Think about this for a moment. We talked about our vision. We want to reach people. I could be the preacher I've always wanted to be and preach powerful sermons. It wouldn't save anybody. We could have, uh, we could have billboards all over this city. We could put signs in our yards and bumper stickers on our cars. We could go door to door. I don't think it would reach people. The gospel's powerful, but they won't really listen until they feel the touch of Christ. And we are his hands and feet. So think about this for a moment. Whose life are you going to touch this week? I read a report once from the U.S. Coast Guard, they were talking about if you're, if you're, trying to, if you're, if you're hoping to keep people safe in the water, the worry is that people who are drowning don't necessarily signal for help. I know in the movies they always wave their arms or they shout help, but in real life a person who's drowning is too busy trying to stay above water. They just, you don't really see them drowning. It's one second you look at them and they're treading water, the next second they're gone. So you've really got to pay attention if you're a lifeguard. That was the point of this report, and it made me think about people who are hurting People don't walk around with signs on them that say, I'm struggling with mental illness or I'm struggling with uh, financial troubles or I'm struggling with uh, my marriage is crumbling. They don't walk around like that. I, I know that we, we think, oh, well, I gave $10 to the guy on the side of the road who was holding a cardboard sign, so I've done my good deed. I got news for you. That guy makes more money than you and I put together. You're not helping society by doing that. Hurting people don't stand out. Especially today when we live in our nice little gated subdivisions far away from those who are struggling. So you've really got to pray and say, Lord, give me eyes to see the hurting. Give me eyes to see the woman whose kids have grown up and gone away and nobody ever calls her anymore. Give me eyes to see the guy whose wife just left him. Give me eyes to see the guy who's just been laid off and he doesn't know how he's going to pay his bills. Give me eyes to see the kid who's bullied. Give me eyes to see so that I can be the touch of Christ. Because they won't really hear our message until they know we care about them. Whose life will you touch this week? That's our job.